And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning, of course, and welcome to Tuesday's edition of The Real Investment Show. Lots of stuff to talk about this morning um, as we anxiously await some uh, big retail numbers. We're about to start getting all the retailers coming out, reporting earnings, uh, Home Depot, Walmart, etc. All, all slated up here very shortly. Now, <clears throat> this is kind of be one of the, the big indicators of the economy, which is, you know, are retail consumers still spending, right? I mean, if you take a look at retail sales, retail sales make up about 40% of personal consumption expenditures, which makes up 70% of GDP. So, so goes retail. So goes the economy. It makes complete sense. Now, we talked a little bit about this this past weekend's newsletter as we were covering the NFIB report. That was the National Federation of Independent Business. And that survey has declined across the board. And when you take a look at you know, their confidence in the economy, those type of things, those are some of the lowest levels we've seen in a decade. Uh, plans to uh, do CapEx, right? Capital expenditures. Are they going to spend money building out property, plant, equipment, et cetera? That answer was no. Uh, you know, the, are they planning on hiring more employees? That is starting to drop, right? So we're starting to see that impact. Higher rates, of course, we've talked about this before, are going to slow the economy. We're seeing that come in. Well, these retail reports that we're about to get from Home Depot, Walmart, Target, others is going to be very important to the outcome of the economy over the next few months. It's going to tell us a lot about where we are. Are, are consumers hanging in there? Are they still spending? Those type of things. That's what we need to know. We'll find that out today. Of course, remember also when we're reporting earnings, those earnings have been lowered a lot. So we're beating much lower revenue estimates and, of course, earnings estimates as well. I do have a report coming out this weekend. This weekend's newsletter will be covering earnings. We're, we're pretty much through the bulk of the S&P 500 earnings, so we've got a pretty good flavor about how that first quarter earnings cycle came. So this weekend in the newsletter, we'll be kind of going through that, analyzing that earnings data to see what it tells us about where we are market-wise, etc. So having said that, though, yesterday markets uh, rose a little bit. We started off weak. Uh, markets rallied back during the day a bit, did finish up in positive territory. Um, but, you know, again, we've talked about the fact that we've just been stuck in this, uh, you know, kind of sideways trading range now for 45 days, just really having a tough time for the market to make a declaration. Of course, it's really kind of this wait and see game for this whole debt ceiling debate issue, right? Are we going to get this debt ceiling done or not? And uh, uh, Joe Biden expressing some optimism yesterday, saying, yeah, we're going to get a deal done. And, and, of course, McCarthy on the Republican side saying, yeah, they're, they're not really making any gesture whatsoever of wanting to negotiate. So don't we, we haven't got there yet. The pressure's not on yet to get a deal done. When, we get, when, when there's pressure there to do it, we'll certainly start getting uh, some progress made. But nonetheless, this kind of gyration in the markets have continued to really just you know, make it frustrating. Markets continue to hold above the 20-day moving average, holding above the 50. Lots of resistance, though, right along these previous tops, really kind of coming all the way back, you know, kind of go through the peak of February. And we're really talking about the fact when we get back to August of last year, the market really hasn't done anything, just a big grinding kind of sideways action, which is, has been frustrating for investors trying to make some money because 
well, it just really isn't going much of anywhere. Uh, the good news, though, is I should say it's good news, but it, this kind of action, we run a sell signal uh, that we triggered back here about, uh, about the beginning of April. Um, that suggested raising a little bit of cash. Um, last week, we added a little bit of exposure to our portfolios because we're getting very close to triggering a buy signal. Uh, unfortunately, that buy signal is still pretty elevated if it occurs in terms of the normal oscillation of the MACD indicator. So it's likely going to suggest that there is some upside if we get a buy signal. So if the market could break out of this range, uh, we could make a move up here to around 4,200 on the S&P, but I wouldn't expect a lot of advance here just because we, you know, we're not really working off a, a good, deep, oversold uh, position in the markets. We didn't have a big sell-off in assets, which, you know, that's, you know, a 5 or 10% correction in the market, which is completely normal in any given year, would have certainly given us a much better opportunity to, to have a, a good buying opportunity at this point. But, but again, we just haven't really had that kind of setup, uh, you know, so far. Um, but, you know, again, there's no reason to be really bearish on the markets either. I know there's lots of negative headlines and lots of negative concerns, recession, these type of things. Uh, the market continues to trade very bullishly. We've had a rising trend line from the lows back in October. The market clearly bottomed in October. There was a, a clear cycle where the markets had set a lower low, then began to set higher highs. That bottom clearly in place now. Um, we also have this declining top that is running right along where we are. So we've got this big compression in prices right now. And, and when you talk about price compression in the markets, this is important because wherever that market breaks out, you think about it like a spring and the market has just been compressing prices and that spring is getting more and more compressed. And when that happens, eventually the market is going to make a movement in one direction or the other. A breakout to the upside would certainly suggest a, a, a larger move higher. A breakout to the downside, for whatever reason there would be, would suggest a larger move to the downside. So the market is going to make a move over the course of the next couple of months. Now, how much longer we can remain in this kind of compression is certainly unknown at this point, but at some point, something is going to happen. We'll get a debt ceiling revolved or we won't. Uh, there'll be some type of, of economic catalyst or there won't be, and the markets are gonna move in whatever direction that turns out to be. I have no idea what's gonna be the trigger, but the, the, the odds are that this market is going to make a fairly significant move sometime over the course of the next several months. It could be higher uh, for sure. There is a possibility it could be lower. But given where the markets have been coming from really since October, I would suspect that move is going to be higher just because of, of where the market dynamics are currently trading. Again, Anything can happen and what's going to drive this move in whatever direction that it occurs is going to be caused by some event, uh, good or bad, and that's going to cause this directional change in the markets, whatever happens. Now, again, that's not talking, don't, you know, if the market broke to the downside, right, that would be bad, but that's not, well, the, the economy's falling apart and we're going to have to be down 30, 35%. You know, we're talking about a 5 to a 10% correction. If it occurs, again, such would be totally normal within the context of any given year throughout history. So in any given year, 5% corrections are normal, 10% corrections are not uncommon. The 20% corrections are uncommon. Those don't happen that often. But 5 and 10% fairly normal. But So a break to the downside could certainly, you know, argue for that 5 to 10% correction. That would provide us a better buying opportunity to put some capital to work. 
A move to the upside, again, would not be surprising here because of, of the trend of the market since October. But again, because markets aren't extremely oversold here, that's going to suggest that the upside is a little bit more limited. So again, it's, it's, it's going to be challenging to trade this market. And it has been challenging to trade this market. As we've talked about, it's been very narrow. It's been a few stocks really kind of driving the way. As we talked about uh, yesterday, and, and this is actually in today's report that we're going to cover this morning, talking about AI and, the, and, and what's happening with artificial intelligence relative to the market and what's happening in the markets and where we're trading. You know, had it not been for just a handful of stocks, the markets would actually be negative this year. And that's something that, that you know, that breadth of the market is certainly an overall concern. Uh, but when we come back from the break, got to talk about a couple of things. Talking about economic indicators, wage growth continues to, 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 to not really reflect a lot stronger economy. We'll talk about what the Atlanta Fed GDP, uh, wage, sorry, wage tracker said yesterday and what that suggests for the economy. We're also going to get into today's blog post, which is on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com, talking about the AI revolution. All coming up here on the show this morning. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Wow, Red. Whatever are we going to do over this hot, lazy summer? Don't you worry, little darling. We're going to break our money malaise. Don't let the summer doldrums sap your money's worth. Register for our next Candid Coffee with Danny Ratcliffe and Richard Rosso with summertime tips for your idle cash. Saturday, June 3rd. It's our half-year financial checkup, breaking your money malaise this summer. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. So the, the big debate has been so far this year is like, well, when's the recession coming, right? Uh, obviously, with the Fed hiking rates, what history says, etc., we're going to have a recession, right? And lots of, lots of podcasts and lots of people in the media talking about the recession's coming, recession's coming. As we talked about before, when everybody expects a recession, things you know, normally don't work out that way because markets tend to start pricing in what everybody expects. But you know, one of the things that's been interesting is that because of all this monetary liquidity that we pumped into the markets, that you know, the, the effect of rate hikes and the slowing of economic activity hasn't occurred as fast as many people expected. And, of course, you know, we talked about wage growth was growing rather strongly over the last couple of years as companies were having trouble hiring employees. There was a lot of job hopping. Um, companies were willing to pay up to get an employee to actually, you know, work. And, and so as we were recovering from this economic shutdown, we had a lot of abnormalities to the data because of all the stimulus, liquidity, et cetera, and supports that we gave to businesses, you know, the PPP programs, et cetera. All that, you know, kept a kept businesses in business that shouldn't be in business, and and b, you know, we hired back a lot of employees that, you know, maybe we shouldn't have, and and all this extra capital that we sent into households spurred a lot of artificial demand that people ramped up for, that they had to say, well, look, I got to have employees to meet this demand, so I've got to pay more for them, and we saw this this wage growth, and so the function has been so far is that we haven't seen 
that big downturn in economic activity that everybody's been expecting. And it certainly hasn't come on the on the timely basis that everybody said, you know, there's been just lots of podcasts like, oh, recession's coming this year and, and I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's going to be bad. Maybe. We haven't seen it yet. But we are now starting to see, finally, maybe some of the first economic data points that suggest that that economic slowdown is actually on its way. And there's a segment on Fox News right now called National Barbecue Day, and a guy is making hot dogs. He's obviously not from Texas. Sorry, I digressed. In Texas, when we barbecue, we're talking brisket, right? Pork butt. Sausage. That's barbecue. Hot dogs are not, not, not barbecue. That's 4th of July fare, which we're not there yet. Apparently, this gentleman on Fox News that is barbecuing has uh, set low personal standards and is failing to achieve them. Back to work. Sorry, I digressed. That's what we get for having monitors in the studio. It's like it's, it's like that show Bolt. Squirrel! Anyway. So we finally have the first kind of evidence that we're starting to see this downturn in economic activity starting to show up in some of the economic data. We, look, we, and we've known this, you know, this, you know, kind of the survey data, as we've talked about before, the Philadelphia Fed manufacturing indexes, the New York, you know, the New York Empire indexes, et cetera, all these regional surveys. They've certainly suggested economic weakness. On a lot of fronts, new orders declining, et cetera. But employment has remained very strong. Wage growth has remained elevated, et cetera. Finally, we're starting to see that maybe starting to roll over. And, and this suggests that we may start to see a pickup in the unemployment rate finally. We haven't really yet, but it might be coming. And the Atlanta Fed, Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker has taken a very sharp decline. And this is kind of a real-time tracking of economic data that is related to wage growth. And that's taken a very sharp drop. Now, normally when you see, now look, uh, first of all, just remember though, it's, it's, it's a sharp drop from a very elevated level. So wage growth as a function remains elevated relative to historical norms. So we've had this big tick up in wages, but is now finally starting to show that wage growth, right? The growth of wages is slowing down rather dramatically. That's not surprising as economic slows down, as the economy slows down and economic activity slows down. Wages, remember, are one of the biggest costs of, of businesses, period. Right? So you you when you want to start cutting, you know, costs at your business, I can I can't really cut off my you know purchases of commodities. I can slow those down. I still got to make a product, whatever it is, or provide a service. The only thing that businesses can cut that are meaningful, right? I could, yeah, I can, I can cut off the the free the free weekly lunches that we provide to employees. I can uh, reduce the amount of paper we consume. I could do little things, right? But those are negligible. Those are just very negligible impacts to the bottom line of cost cutting. 
if I really want to start saving costs, I got to take out the biggest costs, which are employees. And we're finally starting to see that kind of initial warning signs that we may start to see an uptick in employment finally, wage growth being one of those. You know, it was interesting last month as a good example. You know, we've talked about how the economy kind of ebbs and flows. And when you're getting this economic slowdown, you know, it just doesn't go in a straight line. You get these bumps and bounces because people can contract their spending for a period of time. But eventually, I've got to go out and I've got to restock or whatever it is, right? Businesses do the same thing, right? I can sell down most of my inventory, but at some point, I've got to restock some inventory. So you get these little bumps in economic activity when you have these kind of restocking cycles. And we talked about last month, um, the Empire Fed Manufacturing Index. This is the manufacturing index out of uh, New York, the New York region of the, of, the, of the Federal Reserve, had a very sharp jump. And everybody was like, wow, look at that. It's a massive jump. And, and we were talking about the survey data. This is, you know, how do you feel about things? And, you know, the guy's been saying, oh, my, my sales stink and are terrible. And this month I had two sales. And so I'm very happy. I finally sold some stuff. And that can create these very kind of anomalous jumps in the data. And we, we've seen that in the data occur. Well, today, uh, yesterday, the New York Fed uh, Empire Manufacturing Index collapsed again. Uh, and went to an even lower low than where it bounced from last month. So, again, we're still seeing that impact of, of the economy slowing down. But, again, because of, A, how elevated GDP was, it's going to take longer to get to a recession. And this is the part that a lot of people are missing in some of the doom and gloom forecasts that are out there. Like, oh, you know, the Fed's hiked rates and this is happening. And so we're going to have this really deep recession. Maybe. But if you're growing at 2% and the economy slows by 4%, you're at a negative 2% growth. And that's pretty deep for a recession. But if you're growing at 6% or 7% growth and you decline by 4%, you're still growing at 3% or 2%, 2 to 3%, depending on what, what the number was. And see, and that's what's happened. We had such a sharp spike in economic growth because of that $5 trillion that we, that we inject into the economy that the economy is slowing. The, the rate of, of economic growth is slowing, but there is still a large gap between where we are and where we've got to get to to be negative. Right. So the economy still got to slow down a lot more. And so the economy can theoretically slow down and not have a recession because we don't get into those negative growth rates of, of economic growth, even though the rate of growth in the economy is slowing. And that's what's frustrating because, again, all these prognostications, thank you. I don't know why I had such trouble with that this morning. Wow. Just say forecasts. There you go, forecasts. Yeah. That's why all of these prognostications have been wrong so far. Now, could we still have a recession? Yes. It's going to take longer to get there. Might not have a recession until late this year, early next year, because of the time that it takes for all this stuff to slow down. 
we are starting to see some real evidence that that is happening. It's just going to take longer to get there. And, and, as, and, and as long as the markets are aware of this data, and this is the other challenging point, it's like, well, Lance, if, if everybody can see this slowing down, heading into a recession, why are stocks holding up so well? Well, really, they aren't. And we're going to talk about that next when we talk about the AI revolution. But the second thing is, is that the markets are pricing this stuff in. The markets can see this just like you see this. And so markets have been adjusting for slower earnings growth. They've been adjusting for, you know, slower economic activity. They've been adjusting for falling inflation They they because they can see this. And as we talked about before, the thing that, you know, breaks the market is the thing that nobody expects. It's the one thing that, that markets haven't been able to see f- coming, right? It's that boogeyman that shows up in the middle of the night, grabs you out from underneath the bed. That's what scares the markets. And that's what causes an immediate selling by individuals. As long as markets can see it, people that are worried about it, they sell. The, the, the people willing to buy it are buying it. And the market is pricing all this stuff in, and which is why this has been frustrating for people expecting this big decline, right? I'm sitting all in cash, and eventually when this market really drops to a bottom, I'm going to buy cheap. And, you know, we may not get there. This whole grind thing is doing a lot of the work of a decline. And that's going to make it much more challenging to be an entrant into the market if you're waiting for that sweet spot moment, right? You may not get that perfect pitch. All right, we'll get back to the break. We'll talk about today's blog post. It's on the website talking about the AI revolution and what does history tell us about how these things go. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com I want to talk a little bit about the AI revolution. It's been uh, kind of the forefront of conversations as of late, and particularly the market this year. And just, uh, you know, along with this, you know, these AI revolutions, or I should say these revolutions occur throughout history. We had the Industrial Revolution where we went from agriculture to industrialization. And really when you talk about the the Industrial Revolution that began in the 1800s and, and Technically, it's continuing on as we speak, as we become more industrialized. But this is a, you know, there's been phases to this revolution, right? So in the, in the 1950s, it was the great space race, right? Huge advances in, in technology and, and space exploration, et cetera, which really kind of paved the way for computerization and of course you know what we did during the 
space race is we invented a lot of technologies that we use today, the cell phone, the, the microwave, a whole variety of things. And it was, it was born out, you know, they always say mother, you know, the, you know, innovation is, is basically a function of necessity. And, and so when we have to do something, and it was interesting, there's a, there's a great movie with Kevin Costner um, talking about, and the title of the movie is Hidden Figures, and, and this is during the, you know, trying to get a man into space, and they use human calculators, right? These are just a group of people that are super mathematically adept at running mathematical calculations, and so they call them human computers. They didn't actually have a computer, they just, it was humans that were really good at math, and they would say, okay, send these calculations over, have them verified by, by the computers, and these were humans sitting in a room verifying these calculations. A really great movie if you haven't had a chance to watch it. Um, but during the, the process of that, they needed to have faster calculations. And so they started bringing in computers doing Fortran so they could calculate things faster. And this, and of course, it was taking up whole rooms at the time. And then, of course, as we get into the 90s, we get into this era of computerization. Computers start getting smaller. They start getting more personal. Uh, in the early 1990s, uh, Hewlett-Packard launched a computer that could, could handle up to 100 Unix users all at one time. And it only cost $9,500, right? <laughs> you know, you think about what you pay for a computer today. And, and, and so we've continued to innovate and, you know, create new technologies. Of course, as we got into the end of the 90s, it was the Internet. And every company out there had to have something involved in the Internet. When they announced earnings, it was, oh, we've got a, we've got a website up now that we didn't have before. And, and we're changing our name to pets.com. And everybody was jumping on that whole Internet train. To, to basically boost share prices. And, and so we went through that era in the 1996, 97, 98, 99, you know, stocks were rallying based on this whole internet generation, went kind of crazy in 99. And so today we're talking about AI, the next great revolution. Of course, along with that comes cryptocurrencies and everything else that kind of falls into, <clears throat> into that you know, next wave of technological innovation, digital payments, automation, robotics, all of that. You know, there's a new coin out uh, called Pepe, which is it's a, it's a cryptocurrency after the meme frog. It's up 7,000% since it launched. According to Pepe's website, this coin was launched for the people. It has no formal team or roadmap. And it's completely useless and for entertainment purposes only. And people are piling their money into it to speculate on its advances, right? So we'll see how long this lasts before somebody wakes up and sell, you know, smells the coffee and sells it. But, you know, this is, this is all part and parcel of this revolution, right? So, you know, we go back through history and we can look at these periods of industrial revolution. And I've, I've got a chart of the S&P 500 going back to basically 1900. And what we can see is, is that during these periods of revolution, 
whether it's computers or space technology or AI, that there's huge advances made in the markets during those periods. And then ultimately what happens is that markets then don't do a lot for a period of time. And there's a reason for that, of course, but we'll get into that momentarily. But I thought it was interesting because when we take a look at the market where we are today is that we are currently seeing, and this is a chart of the NASDAQ from 1999 to 2000, overlaid with today's price action in the NASDAQ, this, uh, this whole AI boom. So we have the internet boom, the dot-com internet boom versus today's AI revolution. And they're tracking very closely right now and it suggests that, you know, at some point here, we're going to get this kind of, you know, this melt up in AI stocks. If the, the, if the analogy holds, right, we'll see. But we're seeing a lot of that same type of mentality where people are piling into stocks because they're AI. And again, as, as, as you know, we talk about the market where we are today, you know, we have a lot of that action that's going on and, and lots of conversation in the media talking about, the issues of, you know, how AI is going to change our life. It's going to make things better. And, of course, it's going to lead to a lot of job losses. And, of course, people come back with the argument. They say, well, you know, it's just like the Internet. It caused job losses and people got other jobs. Yeah, they just didn't get as good of a job. <laughs> Robotics and artificial intelligence are going to replace a lot of high-paying jobs. And the question is, what are those people going to do, right? We can't all be programming AI. Eventually, AI will program itself. So it's going to be challenging for the economy as we go forward. But what's important about that chart, let's go back to that chart for a moment, talking about these industrial revolutions that we have within the markets, and then those blue boxes where the markets just kind of go sideways. What was the driver of that? The driver of that was valuations. Now, importantly, in the previous cycles where we had these big, massive booms in the markets, we were starting from very low valuations, five, six, seven, eight times earnings. Today, we're starting the AI revolution at 30 times earnings. So how much is there in terms of valuation? And this is important because when we talk about valuation, right, the, the old premise is, is, as Warren Buffett once said, you know, value, you know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. And I just broke down the number of stocks in the S&P 500 that are trading above five times price to sales. Now, Scott McNeely said back in 2000, when his company stock was trading at 10 times price to sales, he basically, you know, asked, he says, you know, you're kind of crazy paying 10 times price to sales for my stock. Here was, a, I'll just read you his exact quote. At 10 times revenues, sales, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. It assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, and is very hard for a, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes and is very hard. And that assumes you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain a current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64 a share? How ridiculous 
those basic assumptions are. And so I just ran a, a list of stocks. I said, okay, if, and, and again, to maintain a 10 times price to sales, companies have to grow their earnings at 20% a year. So when you start getting at five times price to sales, eight times price to sales, 10 times price to sales, how fast do these companies have to grow revenue in order to maintain that valuation? And when you start looking at these companies, you know, NVIDIA, the top leader in the AI space right now, trades at, at uh, 25 times price to sales. They're a very fast-growing company. It is unlikely they can grow revenues fast enough to justify 25 times price to sales at current levels. But that doesn't mean stock can't keep going up. You know, you get down into companies like Apple, Microsoft, Google, all these companies are trading at very high multiples relative to price to sales. And Brent, put that chart back up. Because if you take a look, and I've highlighted some of the more popular companies that people are trading right now, you know, Autodesk, Intuitive Surgical, Adobe Systems, Google, Meta, Analog Devices, you'll see, you'll see your favorite stock on there. All these companies are trading at, a, at, at astronomically high levels in terms of valuations. And again, this is different this time, so to speak, because, again, we're starting this AI revolution, which has actually been going on for 10 years now. <laughs> we're 10 years into this AI revolution. It's just now become mainstream. It's now become the speculative meme. And what's important about that is what this suggests about where markets go to from here based on valuations. How much upside is there left? There could be a lot more, but it's getting harder to justify those revenue run rates at current levels. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. I just want to finish up our conversation on AI. And again, when you go back and look at the late 90s when the internet boom was going on, you know, it was interesting and and. You know, by the time the media picks it up, you're generally pretty late into the cycle and you're starting to see a lot of magazine covers talking about AI, the AI boom, the AI is here. And back in, you know, 1999, September of 1999 to be exact, time.com did a special report called GetRich.com, Secrets of Silicon Valley. Of course, it didn't wasn't very much longer until we got March of 2000, six months later, and that was the peak. But again, by the time the media picks up on this stuff and by the time the average person starts to pick up on this stuff, you, you begin to get, you know, a sense of kind of where we are in the cycle. In fact, right now, if you take a look at the Google searches for AI, they have absolutely exploded over the last few years. And, you know, this is, you know, for, for a long time, 
you know, nobody was really searching AI over the last several months. It's just, you know, the number of people searching for Google on, on AI has been, you know, astronomical. And, and this is, but what's important about this is that, you know, when we take a look at where money's flowing into the markets, and, and we talked about this in today's um, commentary for our daily market commentary. It's on the website now. You'll get an email at 730 if you're subscribed. But we talk about the deep disparity between the S&P, where the S&P is trading, and the equal weighted S&P. And so basically, once you start looking at how the market has performed this year, and this is a great piece by uh, Satgen, Society General, had came out and, and did a report talking about this, is that was it not for these really five, ten stocks of the S&P, and the NASDAQ by, by extension, because it's the same stocks. It's Apple, it's Microsoft, it's Google, et cetera. The market wouldn't be up 8% this year, it'd be down 2%. The rest of the market is not participating. The only stocks that are moving up right now are these stocks related to AI. And so the point about this and the thing that you need to take away from this is there's, you know, you know, we own some of these stocks in our portfolio already, and for the very same reasons everybody else does. But the point about this ultimately is, is to remember that chasing markets ultimately is the purest form of speculation. You're betting on prices going higher rather than determining if that price being paid for those assets is a value. There is a function to where sales growth, earnings growth, et cetera, will not justify those valuations. And, and so you, there's going to be a lot of money made in AI. And that's why we certainly want to participate while we can. But it's important that you keep in mind the valuation that you're paying for stocks. Because at the end of the day, just like I showed you that chart to begin with, at the end of the day, this revolution will end. And I don't mean it's going to end like AI is going to go away. It'll just become an adopted part of our lives, just like the Internet was. And the, 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 the hype and when it becomes a normality that everybody's using AI, et cetera, the benefit derived from the artificial intelligence will be limited. It'll be capped. And then markets are going to have to find out whatever the next new, new thing is. And again, this is why the markets kind of then go through a period of five to 10 years waiting for the next new thing of whatever it is. And so we've had a 12 years of this market advance. It is a very long market advance. We've been, we've been trading on AI for 10 years now. It's just now become public knowledge, so to speak. And a lot of that undervaluation in these companies is now overvaluation. So this era will end, not, not six months from now, not a year from now. Good, but it's not going to end tomorrow. But when it ends, and it will, it will be a function of valuations. And again, the big difference, the big difference between this time and previous times is that we're not launching a revolution from cheap valuations. We're launching this revolution from 30 times earnings, which, again, is something that we have to consider when making our investments. So, again, don't, I'm not telling you to go sell all these stocks. I'm not saying that at all. You want to own them right now. 
just understand that because we're starting this advance from such a high level of valuation, we may not get the, you know, build your way to riches buying dot-com stocks that we saw back in the 90s. Just something to think about. But that's today's article. It's on the website at, at, at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's called The uh, AI Revolution, A Repeat of History. And just really kind of going through this analysis of looking at kind of where we came from and where we're going to. So this morning <clears throat> at 7.30, we've got some economic data coming out. Retail sales month over month are expected to be up 8% versus a negative 1% last month that number could very well come in weaker than expected because tax revenues as a function have fallen which also means that tax refunds are not as high as they were previously expected but we are also moving into april and into may so people are starting to you know ramp up we had mother's day a lot of stuff that's going to be reported in May. We'll have some spending when we get the retail spending report for May. That'll include Mother's Day. We've got Memorial Day weekend coming up, we'll also, which will also be included in the May report. So again, there's things that, and of course, we had Easter in April. That's going to be a boost to sales. So there's these uh, kind of one-off events that are occurring that are helping keep sales elevated, but 8% a uh, uh, plus 0.8% expected growth rate may be a bit elevated based on some of the other economic data we're seeing in terms of credit card usage, et cetera. Um, excluding uh, retail sales, excluding auto and gas, um, once we strip those two out, is expected to be 0.2. And that was a 0.3 negative last month. Industrial production month over month is expected to be zero. Again, uh, showing a, a bit of weakness. And home builder sentiment uh, for May, then, which has been interesting. The home builders has been very interesting as despite the slowdown in housing, home builder sentiment remains very optimistic. Um, you know, they, they, you know, and again, if you take a look at housing stocks, uh, Toll Brothers, Beezer Homes, et cetera, uh, a lot of those stocks are trading at or near all-time highs, which, you know, and if you were – you know, if you look at all the headlines about the housing market, you would certainly suggest that you know, if I didn't, if you weren't looking at stocks, and I said, what do you think housing stocks are doing based on this housing data we're seeing? Price declines, et cetera, rising mortgage rates. You'd say, oh, well, those, those have to be down a lot, right? They're not. And a lot of that has to do with this idea that there's just simply not enough homes out there for people. And people that own homes aren't selling them, so your existing inventory is lean because, again, if, if I have a mortgage on my house at 25 3%, whatever it is, why would I sell my house? Even though I could sell my house for a good chunk of money now, where am I going to go? And if I go to buy a new house, I'm going to buy a new house at a fairly elevated price, and I'm going to have to pay a 6 or 7% mortgage. So that's keeping a lot of sellers of existing homes in their homes. They're going, it just doesn't make sense to move. 
So that's limiting inventory on that side. And of course, that leaves new home buyers only wanting to buy new homes because that's all that's really available. So new construction sales continue to do okay. And that's keeping home builder prices elevated. So it's, it's a very interesting dynamic, despite all the headlines about the housing crisis, et cetera, hasn't really occurred to any great degree. Yes, housing prices have come down in some areas. You know, if you go to some of the very, very extreme areas like, you know, California, et cetera, those house prices have come down 30, 30%-ish. Um, areas like some areas of, of Houston, Florida, example, those prices haven't come down much, if any, at all. So, again, it's, and again, with housing, it's always about that, right? It's always about location, 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 as we've said before. You know, I get a lot of emails every day with people going, hey, I'm thinking about moving, you know, what do you think, blah, 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 blah. And if this is your house that you're going to buy and live in for the next 10 years, don't worry about it. Buy what makes you happy. You're going to live there. That's your home. If you're buying it for an investment property, that's a different story. If you're buying it for your home, just make sure you can afford it. You know, make sure you can put a 20% down payment on it. Make sure that you've got, you know, you're not impairing your ability to save 30% of your gross income every month. As long as you can do that, it doesn't really matter what you pay for the home. Go live in it. You're going to go through a cycle, whatever the price cycle is, and you'll be fine on the other side. Housing, housing as a home is not an investment. It's an expense. By the time you buy your house and sell your house, if you add up all the stuff that you spend on it, taxes, you know, homeowner association dues, maintenance, upkeep, et cetera, you didn't make any money. <coughs> if you're investing in housing, that's a different story price means a lot all right that wraps up the show for the day we'll be back tomorrow of course danny ratliff will be here we'll bring you up to date on some of the retail earnings we've got coming out this morning we've got home depot um, later this week we've got target tj maxx uh, take two interactive on the retail side so uh, we'll keep you up to date that'll tell us a lot about what's going on with the consumer we'll get that first shot on the consumer this morning with retail sales so we'll talk about that tomorrow as well and what that means for the economy have a great day hope you enjoyed the show be back tomorrow right here with danny ratliff get by the website our latest article is out on the ai revolution it's on the website now realinvestmentadvice.com we'll see you tomorrow